Hello, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, just published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. What makes them tick? In this episode, I talked with Mary Trout, Chief Commercial Officer at Candela, the medical laser company. We talked about building and supporting teams with execution focus and getting things done. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Welcome to The Indispensables. I am thrilled to have on as a guest a person who is truly a friend and a longtime client. Mary Trout is Chief Commercial Officer at Candela and brings over 20 years of experience in commercial and leadership roles with the medical device, diagnostic, and pharmaceutical industries. Prior to joining Candela, Mary was Senior VP at AMAG Pharmaceuticals. Before AMAG, she was Vice President uh, for Field Operations at Cord Blood Registry, where she was responsible for healthcare professional strategy, field sales, and customer operations as part of the CBR acquisition to AMAG. Mary Trout, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you, Bruce. Uh, well, you and I have worked together here and there. Uh, I'm always the consultant. You're always the one doing all the work. Uh, <laughs> but uh, everywhere I have ever gone and encountered you, when I talk with the people who work with you, uh, your reputation is so strong. People love working with you. Uh, people uh, know they can count on you. Everyone points to you as exactly what I uh, am trying to capture um, in my work as one of these indispensable go-to people. Uh, Mary, what's the secret of your success? Well, I would say the secret of my success is really the success of those around me, above me, below me, across from me, is making sure that I'm in a position and putting them in a position to win because I certainly don't succeed and be able to get anywhere unless I am facilitating and really enabling and breaking barriers for other teams to win. And uh, I've seen that firsthand. I know it to be true. Um, When you think about building influence with others, um, what does that mean to you? How do you make other people want to work with you, want to do things for you, want you to be more powerful because your power contributes to their goals? Well, I think that specifically and first and foremost, being authentic and being a person that people want to listen to and want to follow by being an active listener, humble, enthusiastic, really showing people how they fit into the puzzle in order to win together is quite important, but also just being a a consistent and a constant servant leader. I firmly believe in that in terms of showing others how you have their best interests in mind and helping them succeed. And again, bringing teams together in order to share a vision as to what company needs to be delivering relative to customer success as well as internal success, and then helping people really understand where their pieces fit in there. And then for me, being the leader is making sure that I am actively 
guiding and also monitoring the success of the teams that need to be working together. Because again, I, I truly believe this, that unless I'm putting myself in a position where I need to drive accountability to understand the goals of my partners in the company and how I need to be supporting them to be successful, I can't expect them to do the same for me. So if we can build an environment where we have levels that are all the way from the ground up, doing that sort of coordination, shared vision, shared vision, pardon me, shared goals and how we get there together, the companies win. I know that sounds like a little bit of a utopia, but it is true is really going at it with what can I do to make you successful partner and therefore we'll be successful together. Well, it it does have this feel of utopia. And sometimes when I describe somebody like you, you know, and people say, well, you know, is she real? And uh, that's why I wanted to introduce you to the world because here you are, you're a real person. But you get a lot out of this too, right? I mean, when you serve others, what do you get out of that? Well, what I when I get out of it is excitement to watch people grow professionally as well as have them take on more responsibilities and see them really put those components together that can make them successful. I just get giddy and beaming like a proud mother when I see staff around the company getting compliments by other staff of, oh, great presentation, great strategy. I'm really excited to be working with this person. Again, watching the dynamics and just that energy level build when people are winning together just gets me out of bed. I mean, I really do love, love, love to watch my teams present and watch other teams present and have my team point and say, I want to be like that person because they push me to get better. Yeah. I want to be like that person. I think that's a great trope. And um, I think that a lot of people, they look at you and say, how do I get to be more like, like Mary? How do you, when you uh, tune into a new team and you start to take the measure of the team and the players, um, what's your approach to that? When you want, if you want to build this culture of excellence and mutual support and uh, people lifting each other up and, and growing, uh, what's your approach to that? When I first go into an organization, regardless of it being a department within a company or joining a new company, first to take a look at some basic things that are trends across all the organizations I've joined. One of the trends is communication, another one training, and then a key one to answer your question is talent. So do you have the right talent and are they, those talent fitted to the roles that they're in today, but also getting the right talent in the seat in order to take on more, in order to have them take stretch assignments within kind of the scope of their role, but also more broadly across the organization is quite important to me. So surrounding myself by people that are certainly engaged to learn, also pushing me to learn more is quite important because I can count on them to be, again, that firepower, not only with what we have to accomplish now, also demonstrate to the broader company how a functioning, highly productive team works, and then they can be influencing others. Yeah. I mean, have you always been like this? (laughs) 
That's a funny question. I'm not quite sure. I guess I will say this. When I worked in a lab, one of my first jobs ever out of college, I remember my boss asking me this question. She said, can you just tell me what your long-term career goals are? And I said, I want to be in charge. (laughs) She said, well, what do you mean by that? And I was able to explain it that I wanted to be able to set the strategy, set the vision in order to then drive people to funnel under that vision to execute. It was the best way that I could describe it. So I guess the answer is yes, perhaps I have been at least aspiring to be. You've always, uh, uh, so you've always had this drive and, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I've ever heard you say it or if it's just the look in your eyes, but, um, but it's certainly said about you that, uh, nobody's going to outwork Mary, but, but it can't just be outworking everybody. What else, uh, what is it that you do each day to set yourself up for success? Well, I would say that what I first do is I always want to be number one. And I don't mean I want to be recognized. I want to be number one, as in I want to be able to deliver what I'm accountable to deliver and then some. I want to be able to be in a position where I can be taking on more responsibility and have a greater influence, not only within my current role, but set me up for something else and also be reaching down across in order to do the same thing. So again, foremost, I want to be out in front. And in order to be out in front, I have to take inventory of what I need to be getting done today. And then I actually measure myself at the end of the day, not with a written checklist. But before I go to bed, I take a moment to reflect on the day. Did I accomplish what I wanted to do professionally and personally? And if I did, you know, take a little bit of a sigh, what am I going to do tomorrow? And if I didn't, reflect what do I need to do better and different in order to, again, advance myself and lift other people up. So it's an end of the day reflection. uh, And you've shared that with me personally before. um, So I'm really glad you're sharing that now. Um, What does that look like? Is it, is it, is it a moment? Is it just before you uh, go to sleep? Is it um, so you have, have, have a, a clarity of, uh, accomplishment and a, and a, and a resetting of goals, uh, to sleep on or, um, it, and, and how long have you, how long has this been a habit of yours? I'd say it's been a habit at least for the last 15 years as I've worked to take on more responsibilities and higher levels within my career. And the way it starts every day is I try to get out of the door to exercise first thing that gives me clarity and an ability to think and I'm a runner. So when I'm running or doing other exercise, I'm able to lay out what I need to be accomplishing through the day. And I also take a topic, a business problem, and I tease people sometime on conference calls. I'll say, you were the topic this morning. I was thinking about you in order to unravel how to get things done and and really how to accomplish through others and through different tactics and strategies of the day's work, the year's work, maybe even long-term strategy. And then at the end of the day, look at the calendar for the next day and say, okay, here's what I need to prepare to get me ready for tomorrow but let me take pause to think about how today went. What could I do better? What do I need to ask this person about for feedback about me or my team in order to be open to change? And then likewise, I think about that for my teammates and even my peers, what I need to be communicating to them for us to get better working together. So it's both a, a 
consistent goal orientation and also uh, regular self-evaluation and self-reflection against those goals. Is that right? Yes, I would say so. And it's a mindset of continuous improvement uh, when it comes to your own day to day and when it comes to how you support and lead others. Yes. What happens for you when you disappoint yourself? What do you do? That's a great question. So we're always so hard on ourselves. In fact, much harder than any other person could probably ever be on us. When I disappoint myself, I'll usually, again, take pause and say, let me measure this a little bit. What went wrong? What could I have done differently? And then you have to be able to move forward, you know, bury it in the backyard if things didn't go well, learn from said failure or perceived failure, and then move forward and commit to, I need to do better. And here's where I need to do better. Here's how, and then be open to ask for advice. I mean, that's something that for me personally has been quite important in my entire career is just active coaching is not only receiving it and not being threatened and or feeling like it's an attack, but actively engaging in coaching that's given to me and likewise providing that to others. I think it's a real, um, it's a real talent to be able to take coaching or criticism or input about how to improve, to really take it as, as, um, as a positive, to take it as a gift, to take it as a service uh, that someone else is taking the time to help you get better. I agree with you. And not all managers are like that. I mean, uh, so many of us in our careers have had managers who might have spoken to us a few times, even throughout a year. And then you think, you know, how important am I to this person that they're not even engaged in trying to learn what I'm doing well and what I'm not? Yeah, I think that's that's so true. Hey, you you said earlier um, you, you you want to practice being uh, a certain way. Uh, who who would you point to as role models uh, for yourself over the course of your career? I had an early role model in my career when I was in the technical and clinical world. Her name was Suzanne Ledeen. I work with her at Chiron Corporation, and she has passed since this time managing me and leading teams and building a family. But she really taught me the value of balancing work and career and not beating myself up over what wasn't going well, but learning more about what I could personally and professionally and also reaching out to others to help impact in order to improve. I felt like I was failing when I worked for her initially. I had been a clinical trainer and it was in a complex sort of space for molecular diagnostics, a new space for me. And she recognized that I was struggling and instead of just being punitive and removing me, she understood that I was balancing a young family, balancing a new job, and she took the time to co-travel with me and show me the behavior she was expecting and demonstrated it and then continued to believe in me and eventually really fostered me into my first sales role. So I am forever grateful for her patience and kindness working with me. And so she did the work of giving you an opportunity to improve setting you up for success, doing the actual hands-on teaching and coaching. Uh, but of course, you had to take the ball and run with it. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I know from personal experience working with you that that is um, also a good way to describe how you engage with people. Um, I've I've had the experience with you a number of times where I've seen you um, really zero in on helping a direct report who you're at such a high level that often your direct reports are executives in their own right. But you, you take the time and energy to tune into them, try to figure out where they might have a gap, and you really work with people to try to help them improve. Yeah, I think that's my obligation as a leader. You know, not only does it help the company, customers, and me succeed by helping others succeed, but I feel that it's a duty and a privilege to grow the skills of those around me. I've been really fortunate to work with Suzanne and then, as you know, Jeffrey Krause over the past 12, 13 years, where he has also actively taken a role in my development by pushing me into situations where he knew I was uncomfortable and didn't quite understand the actual function or how to get the job done. But he was there as a net, if you will, in order to be a guide, a mentor, and be patient and humble with all the things he knew in his background in order to help support my success. Yeah, of course, giving Mary Trout the chance to learn and uh, step up and tackle a challenge is a pretty safe bet. Um, what happens when you when you do that and you know you invest time and energy in someone, you give them a chance, you keep going back and keep giving them another chance, and you know some leaders they do that x number of times and they have the experience that gee you know um they're they're barking at a wall and uh and 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 they get frustrated because they try to help somebody succeed and the person doesn't doesn't take the ball and run with it what what's your perspective on those experiences I think in those experiences, can't beat yourself up as a leader because you've provided, in your example, the coaching, sort of the pathway and demonstrating the behavior. And if the person doesn't glom onto it and doesn't get where they need to be, it should never be a surprise, number one, because you should be having routine one-on-one meetings and really giving them an assessment of where they are and where you need them to be. And then also you have to be able to recognize at some point, perhaps the job is just not for them or the level of responsibility and have the ability to make a change because it's not right for that person or the organizational success to keep someone who's not fitted, fitting a role into a role. That will drag the team down because the team is expecting people to be firing on cylinders while growing. And, you know, one person potentially in the wrong role could drag down an entire team that you spent quite a bit of energy building up. Yeah, I think that's true. And so how do you feel as an individual when you invest like that in somebody? Do you ever feel like you've wasted your time and energy on that? Well, first, you know, it's all about going back to what could I have done better, right? So you say, I could have spent more time. I could have done this. I could have done this. And then again, pause. All right. What did that person do with the information you were giving? Let me look at the macro environment and then say, all right, I take myself out of this. 
It's not always about me and what I was doing, what I wasn't doing. It's about what the outcome is of what the efforts and, and again, coordinating and really working with this person. So what I've had to do over the course of time working with multiple different departments and coming in and overhauling organizations is you have to take somewhat of a uh, sterile is probably not the right word, but you have to remove the emotion out of it when you're making staffing decisions because you are doing the right thing for the company. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt because you know that it's going to be an impact on someone, but you have to keep in the dashboard what you're trying to get to and that this could potentially be a roadblock. And while you've done your part and you feel like maybe they have done their part or haven't, but the outcome just isn't there, time to move on. And then you're able to clear the pathway again and get yourself thinking about that next person and putting them into the seat. That's a really good way to to put it, I think. Um, so let me uh, uh, shift gears for a minute. I w- One of the stories I tell in the book, and it's something that I always uh, uh, smile when I think of it, is uh, you, I think, are very focused on strategy. You're very focused on best practices, on good technique, uh, on repeatable solutions, but you're also very focused on execution. And, and um, when you bring somebody uh, onto the team, I I know you tell them a lot of things, but one of the things you tell them is that you expect people to get stuff done. And, uh, and I tell the story in the book of at least, at least one of your direct reports made a big sign, um, uh, GSD, and had, had it on his bulletin board. So you can testify that that's a true story, right? That's a true story, correct. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but how do you balance that kind of the need to have good strategy, the need to make good decisions, the need to be deliberative, the need to uh, um, do things right and uh, and the balance between that and, okay, but pull the trigger, get things done? When you go into an organization, the first part of it is learning as much as you can, as quickly as you can. So you need to go in and learn the market, learn the people, learn how processes work. Who's who in the zoo is what you and I have talked about before. So how are decisions being made? Who's making those decisions? How you need to coordinate with them in order to navigate challenges and get yourself ready for execution. So a lot of the early learnings are, say, two, three weeks of asking a whole lot of questions, always ask more than talking. So being active listener and then take that information and really digest it and spit out, okay, here are the top two or three things that I believe need to get done in order to have this organization be set up for immediate immediate, pardon me, success based on the potential gaps, and then how do I start laying out a longer-term strategy and bringing people along the pathway with me? Very important is showing success early and getting teams to really understand how team dynamics can work and how shared success works, which is why I referred to earlier being a servant leader and really winning through others. I want to show the value that I can bring by listening and learning about the gaps and the needs of my partners. And then I come back to them and share, here's what we can be doing together. And then again, bring them along the way as to what needs to get done. And then finally, I'll say is making decisions doesn't need 
to have 100% of the information in place in order to move forward. And I think sometimes people in organizations get hung up on that, that get stuff done or said differently how the person told you and the sheet on their wall. I look at that as having 70% of information in order to make a valuable and viable decision in order to move people forward is the way I look at things. Are we going to crash the business by making this decision based on what I know? Yes or no, let's move forward. Do we have enough information in order to give people clarity in order to execute? Yes or no, if yes, move. Yeah, because what happens when when people get, you know, otherwise people get caught up in in the inertia of, um, of, of indecision and the inertia of a lack of motion, uh, sometimes, uh, a suboptimal decision and action is better than no action at all. Yes. Because then you can learn and grow from it. At least some action allows you to see the outcome and say, this was a disaster or kind of worked. We could have done X differently or this work. Let's do more of it. At an executive level, you're often um, trying to collaborate with other executives and help your teams collaborate with uh, other folks and departments cross-functionally. Um, you work in a matrixed organization, um, and, and this is sort of the, the collaboration revolution environment in which more and more people are working. How do you drive that kind of collaboration across departments, across teams, um, when the lines of authority are not always clear? Well, I certainly have to have the buy-in of my peers as we're talking on our shared initiatives and where they need to be supporting me and vice versa, and really have us settle on, this is how we expect our direct reports and their direct reports and so on and so on to behave. So setting the tone at the top by us showing up together to say, here's collectively what we are going to get done. It allows the teams then to understand that's the marching orders is collectively, we are going to achieve the following or we're going to work on the following together. And then they have the ability to have free reign, if you will, to speak with their peers on problem solving. But it certainly starts at that coordination at the top. If you don't have that, it is really problematic in order to have those diagonal or those across the aisle conversations in order to achieve results. So you tried to get alignment uh, around mission, around basic goals and priorities. What happens when there are competing agendas and competing egos? Leaving the egos at the door sometimes is really the hardest part is to just get through emotions and get through why things may not be working. So that peer-to-peer conversation at all levels is, is truly important. So you can understand people's why and really get to look we have a job to do together and I'm not here to make your life difficult, nor you're here to make my life difficult. We have to get through this together. So to walk out of things, not as a family, because we're not a work family, but really as comrades and peers. And while I will sometimes want to harm my brothers and sisters when I was little, you know, maybe wanted to 
squeeze their arm when mom and dad wasn't looking. It doesn't mean that I don't love them and I will not do my part to make sure that we're winning together. And I feel that way about my peers as well. So getting to that emotional, let's just get it done together is critical for teams to not trip constantly and to move forward through obstacles. So what do you do when you, I mean, look, you're a powerful, confident person operating at a very high level of a complex uh, and and uh, lucrative, important business. You deal with a lot of egos. What do you do when you when you confront a competing agenda and a and a, a competing agenda that is uh, accompanied by an ego? Well, we have to understand the background behind the competing agenda. And again, allowing someone to share what they are expecting to be done and why it's important, and then allow me the opportunity to do the same, and then facilitate or really, I'll say, move them down the pathway as a leader to say, okay, We've got five things that we're both saying we need to get done. We only have resources to do three. Let's talk about the end game here. What is best for the organization, our customers, our success? And we need to talk about how we come together again as leaders and get to those two or three things because our teams are counting on us. If we don't do this, they are going to swirl and they cannot swirl. We need to them to be hyper-focused on execution. So again, that really candid and sometimes emotional conversations about what needs to get done, what resources we're balancing, and then collectively come up with, you know, here are the two or three things that we've decided that are absolutely critical for our success. And then being able to articulate those throughout the organization. That's how I've attempted to tackle your question at all the levels that I've held within the last several years. It's got to be sometimes that push comes to shove. And do you have personal tactics that you use when you are trying to navigate a particularly difficult colleague? Listening and asking questions, critical. I feel like from my sales background, something that I learned early on that I apply day in and day out is the person, person asking the questions is in control of the conversation, not as in control as an ominous dictator. It's more about helping guide the outcome when you're asking the questions. It allows people to fully explain their piece and portion and also allows you to then be thinking about a question or two ahead, how you can be moving them down the path of influence uh, and where we need to go. So I would say a lot of active listening questions. My team teases me when I'll say, tell me more. How so? Things like that. But I, I really mean that in order to fully understand what's happening so then we can resolve issues together. And then frankly, a lot of times, and many times actually, you just need to set the tone for the team and say, I know you want to do these five things. At the end of the day, we've got resources to do two. So here are the two we're going to get done and here's why, and I need you to go get them done. We can continue to talk about the other three or four, but right now here's what the company needs. And, and our staff responds well to that. They want direction. They don't want to be swirling. Yeah. I mean, that's where you have authority, but it sounds like 
Um, when the lines of authority are not clear, when you don't have rank in a relationship, um, I, I, I like the strategy you're describing, which is asking good questions. How often do you think if you ask the right questions, do people sort of convince themselves that um, they or they, they somehow find their way uh, in the right direction if you if you lead them with with the right questions? Quite often, I believe it allows people to really think about their position and think about why they are considering what they're considering and be open to differing ideas and how to address a situation or an obstacle by, again, taking a different tactic when they're able to actually speak about the why behind what they stand for. If you don't have authority, you have to use influence. That's become like a conventional wisdom. What does that mean to you? Using influence to me certainly doesn't mean in a negative way in terms of tricking people at all. I think influence can sometimes be perceived as that as somehow using power for the wrong. I think of influence as really using the ability to bring people together, collective ideas together, and uh, really uh, helping foster an environment where there is success, there are benefits by relationship building. And again, just showing that end game of where people can go by coming together versus working in silos. That's something actually that's one of my hot points. And I don't rarely lose my temper. In fact, I don't think I've ever lost my temper professionally, but people know when I get agitated and irritated. And one of the times that I get agitated and irritated is when teams start working as singles versus considering the broader need of the organization. And again, I highly encourage my teams to be thinking beyond yourself, look at what your partner needs and what you can be doing staff member is be able to build influence across the organization by again, reaching out and helping others. Yeah. And when they do help others, um, it's not totally selfless, right? There's the, the, there is something in it for the individual when they have that reputation. Absolutely. I mean, it allows that person to be able to gain their own personal PR, that this is someone that I can count on, that they're not just leaving me hanging. Therefore, I, as the other person, want to do my part to make sure they're successful. I mean, it seems really simplistic and quite obvious, but you just don't see that in every organization. There's a lot of companies and departments that just have their goals of what they need to get done. They're focused on that. Everything else is kind of in their blinders. And unfortunately, they don't succeed as fast as departments that really embrace the ability to think about things cross-functionally and how an organization can win with a lot of positive dynamics by working together. When you have a reputation as somebody who gets things done, as somebody who does have a good strategic outlook, as somebody who can bring people together, when you have that reputation, it serves you. I think so. Because people know that they can count on you and that you are a real person and that you're going to take their concerns very seriously. Because well, as mentioned earlier in our discussion, people are people. You know, we are not robots. I truly want to be a part of a winning team and watch other people succeed. And I want to be a positive impact 
on their careers. And I want to be a positive impact on my daughters and my friends and my spouse and those around me. And you really can't do that if you're only thinking about yourself. You have to do it through others. Yeah. And in moment by moment, um, I mean, do you ever lose sight of the, of the long game or, um, it seems like you're one of those people who really does play the long game moment by moment. Well, I will say this is when I have had some frustrations, it's because I get myself into a little bit of a ditch is potentially only thinking about myself. And I realize that quite quickly when I'm doing this, what about me? Oh, woe is me. I don't get it. I don't understand. And then, you know, I pull myself out of and say, okay, stop being selfish. You know, this isn't about you. You need to be thinking about others. And I tend to get myself out of it pretty quickly like that. But if I'm ever thinking about myself, and again, I believe that's fundamental in any business person and frankly, in, in any person's character, business or outside of business. When you think about yourself, you typically don't make the best decisions versus if you're thinking about other people. Yeah. I mean, there's something kind of um, almost uh, mystical, magical but it's so tactical also that if you if you function um as as a as a as if you're um disconnected from others things don't go as well for you but if the more you you know it's like if you do something for someone else you feel better if you add value for someone else you make yourself more valuable if you do things for others things go better absolutely I mean, that's just human nature, you know, to be able to really get excited about other people winning and, and being part of a tribe versus being a singular entity, you know, trying to float through your job or life and, and being measured just by your own success. If you were talking to yourself 25 years ago, or if you were giving advice to somebody who's earlier in their career and somebody who wants to be like you, what's your, what's your advice for somebody? Somebody says, how do I get to be like you, Mary? The first thing I would offer would be a quote that embodies this, that one of my direct reports used when I first started working with him at this company, it was be greater than your excuses. It's always looking for a way to be an action taker and not an excuse maker. So you can be driving to your goals. I would say that's number one. And number two, something I say quite often is every day is an interview, as in we talked about the reflection early in the day and at the, at the end of the day. So am I making an impact to move things forward? Am I showing up to meetings present and being an active participant? Am I someone that others can count on? Really, how would I be graded today if someone was going to point at me and say, you know, Mary, this is what you were able to accomplish today. So I feel like slices of time, as in every business day, I do try to have it be somewhat of an interview for me so I can say, I was able to impact the following. Here's what I need to improve upon. Here's where I need to grow. Here's where I need to be counting on others. And that little increment of time and measurement has allowed me over the course of the last several years, be setting up short and longer term goals to move to the next step of my career. Mary Trout, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce.
In our next episode, I'll talk with Dr. Sylvia Vacht, who is president of the Carnegie Bosch Institute and a Taekwondo master. We're going to talk about the relationship between the principles of martial arts and how they can apply in the workplace. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Any little bit helps to drive us up the charts. You can learn more about GoToism and the techniques which make indispensable people stand out in their jobs and careers and lives in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, available wherever books are sold. If you're interested in bulk orders, please check the show notes for more information. And finally, you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com, by following me on Twitter, at Bruce Tulgan, or find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at the links in the show notes. Until next time, stay strong and be indispensable at work.